Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm John Norton Moore, of the uh, direct the National Security Law Center here at the uh, law school. And I would like to welcome you to a uh, presentation of the center. Uh, today, we're honored to uh, have Glenn uh, Gerstel, the general counsel of the National mm -hmm. Security Agency, uh, talk to you. Uh, Mr. Gerstel is um, someone who practiced law for about 40 years at the international law firm of Milbank Tweed. Uh, he had um, run the, uh, or been a partner in the Singapore and Hong Kong offices, um, and then subsequently was the managing partner of Milbank's Washington, D.C. office. Uh, he was not only um, appointed by uh, the uh, administration or civil service in the administration as the general counsel of NSA, uh, but in addition to that, he was appointed by President Obama to the National Infrastructure Advisory Council, which reports directly to the President and the Secretary of Homeland Security on the vulnerability and resiliency of the nation's infrastructure in all sectors, from terrorists to other national security threats. And he was also, by appointment of the mayor of the District of Columbia, on the District of Columbia Homeland Security Commission. As you know, um, uh, the NSA is at the intersection today of some of the most uh, crucial and important issues for the country. Uh, issues involving, on the one hand, uh, obviously uh, protecting ourselves from terrorist attacks, and on the other hand, uh, uh, crucial issues of uh, privacy uh, and protection of uh, who we are uh, as, a, as individuals and as a nation on it. Uh, Mr. Gerstel, thank you so much for uh, coming today. We're honored to, uh, to have you, and I will turn it over to you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, is, if, if I don't use the microphone and stand here, is that okay? Can you all hear me? Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, and um, I appreciate you all uh, coming out. And, uh, and uh, it just proves the, uh, how powerful free lunch can be. Um, but, uh, but I'm delighted to be here. I had the good fortune of coming here on several occasions in my prior life when I used to recruit on campus at this terrific law school uh, with my law firm. And uh, I'm happy to say that uh, for many, many years in a row, uh, my old law firm had some terrific students come here uh, uh, from this school. And so I definitely have a fond place in my heart for it. Um, what I'd like to do today is tell you a little bit about some of the challenges that the National Security Agency faces. And we'll spend a few minutes on that. And, um, and first, I'll start with my favorite topic, which I'll come back to in a second. And we'll talk a little bit about challenges. And then, and then I'm just happy to open up the questions, because I think that's the most useful thing, and respond to uh, whatever, whatever you'd like to talk about, rather than having me drawn on for a long time. So um, we'll start with my favorite topic, and that would be me. Uh, and um, I want to tell you about how I wound up in this position. So as the professor said, I, I had the good fortune of uh, working for a law firm for 40 years, and you think, wow, it's really long, and the answer is yes, it was really long. Uh, I got out of law school, um, uh, went to a law firm, uh, this was the day before the Volt Report and the American Lawyer, AboveTheLaw.com, and all that other sort of stuff. So I had really no idea where I was going. I just sort of heard that it was a good place called Millbank Tweed, located in downtown Manhattan. 
sounded okay, and I'll join and definitely I'll leave in a year or two and do something really interesting. And after about two, three years, my wife, who was also a former world graduate in my middle contract class, uh, said, um, gee, do you think you're going to be leaving? And I said, well, maybe I'll wait a year or two. And the next thing I know, I got sent to Washington, and she said, are you going to leave? And I said, well, no, because we're going to invite my partner, partner, Decided I really wanted to do something I'd been doing as an application, which was public service. Uh, and I'd been on various boards and commissions and volunteers, and that sort of whetted my appetite in the area. And I thought I really would like an opportunity to be involved in full time public service and do something. I had no idea about this particular job. I guess in theory, knew that there was a general counsel of the NSA, but nothing more than that. And a friend called, up, called me up, who was then the Pentagon general counsel, and said I should apply for this. I did apply for it, thinking I wouldn't have any chance at all of getting it. And uh, I guess due to a rather serious, apparently irreversible clerical error that I was selected for the job, um, uh, the transition from the private sector to the NSA is an amazing one. Uh, it, I, it's a daunting challenge. It's a technically complicated place. I had no experience in a, in a, uh, a secure, secret work environment. I did, my, my old job, I used to, was 24 hours a day in the sense of if you work at a law firm, or I imagine if you will, you'll find that you've got a smartphone, an email, and your clients will follow you around 24 hours a day, Saturday, Sundays. There's an expectation that you be constantly available because the partners will demand it, the, the clients will demand it. And in my current job, when I walk out of the building at 06, 07 o'clock at night, my hours are fairly regular, not always, but fairly regular, uh, my work sucks. Why? Because it's it's all conducted on the type, top secret level. I can't do any work at home. I can't do any work on my cell phone. I don't have email access to a top secret system at home. So one nice thing is that my weekends are completely free. Again, absolutely no emergency, which sometimes happens, but basically uh, it's a big change in that regard. Uh, it's also a big change in, in going outside from the world of profit and competitiveness to a world that is uh, not really very competitive. Um, there's tremendous collegiality and a real strong sense of mission. It sounds a little corny, uh, but people are working at the NSA and elsewhere within the intelligence community because they want to be there. They're not just punching a clock. It's not just a job. Most of the people I work with every day uh, absolutely can walk across the street, metaphorically speaking, and double, triple, or quintuple their salaries. Uh, so they're there because they want to be there, not because just it, the money. And, and that really has a really has a strong uh, impact on the culture. When I arrived there, I didn't bring any particular uh, predisposition or propensity uh, to any one particular political goal. I wasn't a privacy zealot or I um, the sur surveillance not or something. I just wasn't, I'm just a sort of pragmatic person who was looking to do some public service. And so I approached a lot of this with a, a very much open mind. Um, so we can talk more about that in my reaction, but let me shift to what I think are some of the challenges we face now, and then we can go to some questions. 
So, uh, as the <laughs> professor said in the introduction, which is very kind, uh, NSA is really at the forefront of, I think, two of the most exciting and important things that our federal government does today. One is helping against the fight of uh, uh, terrorism, and two, um, deal with cybersecurity. And I like those are, our, I think, our two strongest challenges the NSA faces right now. And the reason the NSA is, deals with them is because we have, by statute, two missions. One. The NSA is the, is the only organization of the United States government that is authorized to engage in signals intelligence for foreign intelligence purposes. So uh, signals intelligence, you know, the tracking of electronic signals, et cetera, is something that, that only the NSA does for foreign intelligence purposes. I understand the word foreign. We do not do anything domestically. Um, I'll talk about it. I'll get more detail about that. We don't do domestic surveillance. We're doing international foreign surveillance for approved targets. Um, and the second mission we have is uh, probably in some ways the more complicated and explosively growing one, which is cyber security and information assurance. So the NSA is charged with uh, being the agency of the United States government that keeps the Department of Defense networks uh, uh, sacrosanct from, from attack by uh, hackers or adversaries, and also what's called national security systems, which are basically the classified systems that the government runs on the Department of Energy, the president's nuclear uh, chain of command, so that, that, that system that enables the president to give a direct order to uh, nuclear bombers, missiles, whatever, but obviously we don't want anyone spoofing that, interrupting that, et cetera. So that particular network and others, the NSA is in charge of it. The rest of the sort of .gov domain, so to speak, for the Commerce Department, the Agriculture Department, the what have you, um, is generally the province of the Department of Homeland Security and uh, for criminal matters, the Department of the FBI. So uh, we can go into a little more about this too, but our, our cybersecurity mission is, is rather specific. It's divided up among the government. And we don't have anything to do directly with the private sector, which again is something that DHS interfaces with. So as to these two challenges, um, uh, just to spend a minute or so on each one, uh, the, the terrorist one um, probably occupies our attention the most because I'm sure you've all seen these statistics that say that the odds of being involved in a terrorist attack are, you know, whatever, say it's getting hit by a meteorite, but something really small. And yet, it, it, it's something that's on the front page. It captures our attention all the time. When there's a terrorist incident, we're all glued to the TV about it. And why? Because it, it, it affects our American way of life. I mean, our, it, it's very it, a terrorist attack corrodes is this corrosive thing that goes directly to our values, our way of life, our democratic society, our open society. Now, we don't want to come into the law school and have to. Um, be subject to a, a, a body search, a strip search, and x-ray machines. And we don't want to go to a, a McDonald's and have, have someone wave a wand over us to see if we have a bomb or a gun, et cetera. It's just not the way our society works. We don't want to work in that place. And terrorists, uh, a terrorist incident threatens that way. So understandable that it attracts our attention. So what, what do we do about that? Well, the NSA is really the forefront, along with the CIA and the FBI, of, of trying to thwart terrorist plots. And in the year that I've, a little over a year, a little over a year that I've been at the NSA, I've personally, personally seen a numbers of instances, many instances, in which some information that we found out about a terrorist 
has directly, I mean literally directly led to either the apprehension or killing or whatever of that particular terrorist, stopping that particular terrorist, or it's just merely stopping the attack or more of the attack in some way. It's amazing to see what resources the government has. Most of our attention, as you might expect, is focused on Syria, um, uh, to some extent also Iraq and elsewhere, but um, we're particularly focused right now on ISIL. Uh, we are worried about um, foreign fighters coming back uh, as, as the attacks continue on Mosul and other areas. You can see people coming back and leaving the battlefield, uh, threatening our homeland here. So uh, we work actively uh, to do surveillance to try to penetrate the networks, um, keep track of them, tip off foreign partners, work closely with foreign partners, but it's something that uh, uh, is at the forefront of what NSA does. We're also involved as a combat support agency, keeping track of um, our forces around the world. So if there are troops in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever else we have, we have special forces operating. Um, NSA will help provide force protection, alert troops on the ground, uh, to dangers that may be literally right around the corner. So very active um, sense of an operational tempo within the building in that regard. The second uh, area, and, and the first one obviously is difficult because the terrorists are very aware of our attempts to do surveillance, um, and they're pretty savvy about how they communicate and try to keep it secret, so it's, a, it's an ongoing cat and mouse game. The second area uh, of cyber security and information assurance, I would submit, is is the not to say the more dangerous area, but it's the one that has a, a more uh, immediate impact on all of us, unlike terrorist incidents, which hopefully will not affect anybody in this room. Cyber security affects everybody in this room. Uh, we're, we're all at risk uh, of, of a cyber attack, whether it's from spear phishing to your Gmail or Hotmail account to something more nefarious. Um, and I would say, uh, and this isn't an official agency position, just my personal opinion, but, but I, I think our U.S. government and our society is generally not well positioned to deal with the threat. I can't think of any other technology that has grown so quickly, so fast, become so pervasive, has such an impact on our daily lives, that on one hand, and yet on the other hand, we're so unprepared as a society to deal with it. So just on looking at the government side, the government side, if you were designing a cybersecurity program uh, for, for a, a government, you wouldn't come up with what we have, which is NSA does Defense Department networks and is in charge of that. DHS is, is loosely in charge of other sectors of the federal government, but isn't really directly in charge because each department gets to do its own things within certain limits. Um, the SEC has something to do with it because it oversees public companies reporting about cybersecurity incidents and they have some involvement. FTC retroactively can get involved in a company in certain industries if they fail to have proper cybersecurity uh, measures in place. Um, the FBI criminally investigates it, but then the Secret Service also does it's a bank of financial institutions, which is scattered all over the place. Private sector side, um, industry doesn't have one universal standard for cybersecurity. Uh, Silicon Valley, so to speak, is split in lots of different ways on its approach. There's no industry standard. So it's just a, it's an area where there's just no unified consensus on how we should deal with the problem. And yet everyone's aware of the problem. That's not, that's not the issue. Uh, but we haven't figured out how to deal with it. So um, if you think back about other technologies, whether it's I don't know, railroads, or automobiles, or whatever, 
our society sort of after a while figured out how it wants to regulate it. Do we want it public? Do we want it private? Do we want to make it seatbelts required or not? Whatever. And and by the time this technology became very pervasive and impactful, we sort of figured out a way to deal with it. And here, this 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 technology has outstripped, outpaced our ability to address it. Uh, as far as far as NSA is concerned, um, it's an area of exceptional challenge uh, for us. Um, we're, we're probably leaders within the government in terms of the technical expertise we have to deal with it. So we're constantly tipping off both the private sector and VHS and others about um, malware that we find, uh, viruses, et cetera, keeping, keeping track of that. And, and the industry very much looks to us. Uh, we've got probably the largest selection of PhD mathematicians in the, in the world, assuming uh, at NSA, and they're very focused on, um, on, on uh, uh, encryption algorithms and threats to, threats to uh, the <coughs> of the internet. So those are the two sort of cutting edge things that NSA does, and when I go to my job every day, those are the, those are the two things I'm hearing about all the time, which is really fascinating. We've got two um, difficulties uh, that, that confront us in that in, as we try to address those. And one is encryption, and the other is, I don't want to say it's a difficulty, but the other, the other challenge we have to address is, is making sure we take care of privacy requirements. On the encryption, they're, they're sort of two sides of the same coin. On encryption, we definitely, as an agency, are very much in favor of encryption. Uh, it's vitally important to protecting the nation's secrets, so we want those encrypted. And just as an individual citizen, I certainly want strong encryption, which is to say I want to make sure my MasterCard and Visa transactions are, are secure. So there's no idea that we should get rid of encryption or we should have backdoors to encryption, et cetera, et cetera. You'll sometimes see that in the popular press. Um, so encryption is very important. It's here to stay. Uh, and by the way, strong encryption for those of you who aren't familiar with the technology is, is of such a level that even the most sophisticated computers today aren't able to crack it. There just isn't a capability uh, to, to crack encryption uh, with anywhere near the time or power that's needed to, to do that. Um, so there really is encryption that literally can't, can't be broken. Uh, it's quite, uh, uh, quite ubiquitous. Uh, so we have the challenge of encryption. Uh, terrorists use encryption. They know about it. Um, uh, they sometimes shift to ever, ever more secure devices. They're aware of what we're doing. And we've seen terrorists sort of go dark in the expression in that regard. And that, that's a big challenge for us. It's probably more of an issue for law enforcement, which doesn't have the resources that NSA does, uh, than, than for NSA itself. Uh, we can usually figure out ways, not always, but often figure out ways to serve out uh, encryption. Sometimes we can find out not necessarily about the content of a call or a, or, or a communication between two terrorists, but maybe we can find out, uh, not necessarily the content, but we can at least find out who they're talking to and how long the call was and where they might be located, even if we don't actually know what they're saying. That's not the whole answer to the question, but at least we can do that. Maybe we can then collaborate with the CIA to find out some, using human intelligence to try to find out who these people are once we've located them, and et cetera. So we have ways of bringing resources to, to bear in a very coherent, coordinated way to try to crack the terrorist problem, even if they are using encryption, but it's a challenge. Uh, the other side of that is privacy. Again, encryption can help keep conversations private, which we all want to have private. And from NSA's point of view, we are aware that surveillance is an intrusive act. And we understand that. And so we're 
very, very sensitive about how we do it. There are lots and lots of um, requirements that we need in order to honor privacy, both for citizens in the United States, where the Fourth Amendment applies, as well as to the citizens uh, of other countries to whom to the Fourth Amendment does apply, but we still have respect for basic human rights and domestic laws in countries, et cetera. So privacy is something we want to honor, uh, but it potentially runs, runs into an intersection with some of our uh, foreign intelligence surveillance goals. So those are things we grapple with sort of every day. Against all of that, uh, the way we confront those two challenges and deal with those issues uh, is all done under a tremendous layer of oversight. Uh, the NSA I discovered on arriving there is probably, I think, is the most highly regulated agency in the United States government. We report to directly to two committees of Congress, um, multiple other subcommittees indirectly, uh, the two presidential oversight boards, President's Intelligence Advisory Board, President's Intelligence Oversight Board, the Department of Justice National Security Division, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, and so on and on. And a large part of my day is spent signing reports going to these various uh, various agencies, telling them where we made some mistakes or errors, and how we comply or not, or how we're fixing something, whatever. So I mean, it's a really big part of our life. I'm not complaining, by the way. I want to be clear on that. Uh, I recognize why we need to have layers of oversight, and, and some of it's redundant. I guess all I would say is just as a sort of a personal view, not an official agency view, is I think once again, if you were starting with a clean sheet of paper, you probably wouldn't come up with the type of system of oversight that we now have, uh, which, which is redundant and, um, and, and probably inefficient. But having said that, I, I absolutely think they were a really strong, robust uh, uh, type of oversight and compliance regime. And, and, um, when I talk to see the people at the agency, there's 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 complete unanimity on that point. There's there's no this is it's not something that people think, oh, we don't really have to do this, we want to try to avoid it. That is not <coughs> and I wouldn't be there, I don't need I'm the job, I don't I wouldn't be there if that was the case. Um, so it's a it's a fascinating issue. We've got lots of challenges that we have to confront and uh, why don't I stop there and throw it over to some questions and see if I can address any particular concerns you may have or questions. And we can also talk about uh, career issues, recruiting, because we do recruiting and we'd love to get fabulous people to come and join either NSA or elsewhere in the intelligence community. So I'm happy to answer any questions on the yeah, That's great. Let's open it up okay. to questions. Yeah, sure. Can you talk a bit about the legal questions that arise about uh, using malware or virus? proactively in terms of an attack on a foreign target rather than defensively? Yeah, so uh, a good question. Could you all hear the question? No. So um, the NSA does not have authority uh, to conduct, I guess I would say, informally offensive actions, so to speak. Uh, so as, as a foreign intelligence um, surveillance organization, we can we can do sort of passive collection, we can do surveillance. We're authorized to do that, uh, subject to various statutes and regulations. Um, we could we could do certain things for counterintelligence purposes also, but we don't have the legal power 
nor are we proposing that legal power to do sort of offensive actions. That is the province of most, most specifically the United States Cyber Command, um, which is co-located with the <coughs> in our offices. And I have a counterpart who's the, the staff advocate uh, for, for the uh, Cyber Command is a uh, part of the JAG Corps. So we, we coordinate very closely, but it is separate. And um, as, as uh, the President's Secretary of uh, Defense has stated, um, U.S. Cybercom is actively engaged in trying to address uh, uh, adversaries around the world. In particular, ISIL is one particular target that we've said we, we want to, to go after. So um, they have the power, uh, legal power that is, to um, use cyber as, as a weapon. And um, obviously there's lots and lots of writing in, in, among scholars in international law exactly what you can do in the cyber arena is less than an act of war, what's involved in use of force, and there's a fascinating, interesting conversation about that. But it's not something that NSA does, it's something that handled by cybercom, but um, a, uh, clearly an area of law as well as an area of activity that is going to be Incredible importance and significance over the next decade is as we evolve. Can you talk about any kind of uh, structural or procedural controls preventing the uh, domestic surveillance, in particular when interacting with other agencies that do operate domestically? So, uh, great question. Um, on um, there's all sorts of layers of compliance that have been oversight from the Office of General Counsel, all people reported to, uh, I referred to before, who we report. There's also about a, oh, I don't know, a 300-person compliance group that works directly with analysts who are doing the surveillance. So there's a lot of internal controls, but more to your point about physical controls. So when an analyst uh, when an analyst wants to target bad guy in Syria, um, and has, has some reason to think that he or she is, is a target, um, uh, they have to put, they have to make a decision to target that person, and, and generally speaking, they need to get, they need to write a justification of why they're targeting that particular person. They just can't decide I want to go after that person. They've got to write a justification. Needs to be approved by a supervisor, um, and then it goes into a computer system where they put it in the, the justification has to be there. The supervisor's approval has to be logged into the system, and depending on certain things, other other requirements have to come in. And then uh, the particular what are called selectors, the phone number, the email address, or whatever. So if you have a phone number, the cell phone of the terrorist in Syria, articulate why that's a legitimate target. And all over the system, we put the phone number in and thing, and then, and then the, the uh, target is put on a task, so to speak, in the surveillance system, and collects information about the person. In order to access databases, say if you wanted to search an existing database to see whether that phone number had been used by somebody or who was contacted with, there are physical aspects of the computer system that prevent that particular analyst from looking into a database he or she is not authorized to do. So for example, if that analyst has not taken 
all the required training for uh, uh, intelligence gathering and advice on the part of the surveillance act, but it's a series of courses you must say complete. If that analyst hasn't been authorized to look at FISA data, then his or her computer won't let them do it. So if they try to go into our FISA database, they just simply physically can't do it. And um, we've tried to get the computer architecture to marry up with the various restrictions that are applicable, and they're really quite effective. Uh, so there's layers of compliance checks on how someone does surveillance themselves, they need supervised approval, they need the right justifications, and it's all beautiful log, it's a little track of it. Um, every, uh, every month, the Department of Justice, uh, National Security Division, carries on and review all of our certifications and targets of every single funder will be selected under surveillance under, for example, Section 702 of FISA. So we literally have people come to our office and go through number by number what we're looking at. So there's just lots of layers of that. And um, it's, it's done and intended to be done. Um, the CIA has its own investment branch, which allows it to communicate more with the private sector about relevant tech issues and things like that. Is there a reason why the NSA doesn't have its own investment branch, and are there other ways in which the NSA sort of interfaces with relevant tech giants about issues that are of national security? Sure. So uh, I guess given the NSA's slightly different mission that we don't uh, there's a sort of you know, different approach than the CIA to some of this. But, but we do have a department that actively engages with the with the private sector. There's a, and it's on our website, it's not, it's not a secret. Um, uh, so we have we have a, an outward facing organization that deals directly with with um, with uh, industry and that's to help us where appropriate consistent with the law in, in surveillance activities. And also far more significantly in the cybersecurity area where we are very, very engaged with the tech sector. Uh, we've got advisory panels on which representatives of the tech sector sit on our advisory panels. Uh, we're constantly hosting tours of people uh, from uh, Silicon Valley who want to come in and understand that. But what we're doing in the cybersecurity area, I'm just, I have an informal program so sort of outreach, so I just had uh, lunch last week with the general counsel of one of the biggest tech companies. Uh, and so there's, there's a fairly extensive dialogue. Um, some of it is conducted at the, at the, at the secret level, or top secret level, where in some cases there are people at corporations who have the security clearances that are necessary. There are many big companies, telephone companies and others that need to have that action. So, so I think there's a fairly healthy dialogue back and forth. Not only the public, but but there's a, there's a fairly healthy dialogue back and forth. I don't I don't I don't have a feeling that the um, uh, NSA is useful in that regard. Your question back here, yes. Um, so you mentioned that I guess the point of kind of counterterrorism counter efforts is to kind of protect our freedom, like freedom of movement. Like you, we don't want like metal detectors at, at every door. Um, so I was wondering if you thought that intrusions into our physical space 
were any different than like intrusions to kind of like our cyberspace, um, whether protecting our bodily autonomy is significantly different than protecting like our privacy in terms of like emails and phone calls and stuff like that? That's a good question. But obviously, obviously, there's a difference in your roles or resonates with us. There's some difference. Um, uh, I think that um, the question of what level, uh, I think our society has not yet sorted out in the digital age exactly what expectations of privacy are. And we're still sort of like dealing with the threat of cybersecurity. Um, this is all happening so quickly. The, the, the digital revolution has happened so quickly. We have the social media communications and it's learned in such a way that the evidence of the issue is In fact, notions of privacy in Europe are very different from notions of privacy in the United States. Uh, and even within the United States, uh, are we all comfortable with the fact that Facebook has as much information uh, about you as they do? Uh, are we comfortable with the fact that there are unregulated data brokers who sell all sorts of data about, about you, maybe not individually identified by your name, but enough information so that someone could stitch together so they can start working on it and figure out identities, uh, are, are we comfortable with that, knowing that they know what, what loans you have outstanding, how much money you have, uh, where you bank, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm just saying we, there's a lot of advantages to the electronic, um, the, 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 a lot of advantages to, the, to our digital life that makes it very convenient for us to communicate and share information, to obtain information, and yet it does have a privacy price tag to it. So uh, I don't think we've sorted that out as a, as a country, uh, as a society, on the, on the question of surveillance. Um, as I said, we, we don't do domestic surveillance, uh, but um, there is some, some limited, given under the symbol of the USA Freedom Act, there is some limited uh, ability to see who's made phone calls to whom under, under the Freedom Act, uh, under very, very limited circumstances where we go to a court And then I think, you know, another interesting issue that privacy advocates will debate about is what's a search in digital age? So if, if for example, um, uh, a telephone company, I mean, just a stories of the press about various uh, email providers. So if an email provider searches for your name and your content, I mean, Google, Yahoo, Facebook, blah, blah, Hotmail, they have access to your content, right? Um, uh, so if, if they have access to your content, are they searching? I mean, is, is this a mere fact that it's knowable to them? Is that a problem? What if the NSA, what if the NSA had that same data, and had that same database, and no human being saw your email or read your email? Would you feel your privacy rights were violated? Would you feel there was a search if NSA just started copying your email? Just posing hypothetical. You feel that way? Maybe someone would. Someone would. Um, what if we actually search the email looking for your name, um, but we discover your name and your email? Is that something you feel uncomfortable about? Or is it really you feel violated only if someone actually sees the email and you would be reads it and says, oh, my God, I was that the point when there's a 
search and you feel your privacy is violated. An old question I propose an answer, but we don't really have a societal sense of what that means. And um, it's got to get sorted out. Uh, uh, I think it's a really complicated question. It's going to take time to get sorted out. I think lots of different opinions on it. Um, we try, not we, our, our government's trying to strike the right balance in the various surveillance statutes that we have. We have requirements of probable cause in some cases. In other cases, we have a requirement for reasonable, articulable suspicion, which is another standard that's only developed in terrorists. You can sort of see a sliding scale where if there's a really big risk of harm or injury, we maybe want a lower standard. And if we're just doing ordinary searches, maybe you want a higher standard by probable cause. So, you know, we've got to work this out. It's a, uh, it's a I don't think it's one easy answer. I'm going to answer your question directly, but it, it's a foreign problem. Yep. Sir, so you mentioned earlier that if uh, you were designing our sort of information cybersecurity apparatus, this isn't how you would do it. Can you talk about what that might look like if uh, you were designing it from the ground up, given the need for distinct position sets, but you know, common capabilities? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll give you my personal view because the agency doesn't have an official policy. But my personal view. Is I think we're trying to experiment. We're going to have to do some new. We can't do no. We don't know for sure. I'd like to do an experiment along the lines of what the the UK, which is the United Kingdom, just started last month. Started an integrated approach to cyber with a sort of offshoot of the general GCHU general. Uh, which is an integrated cyber center that looks at threats to cyber within the UK, both public and private, as an integrated whole, not an intervene. So if there's, a, if there's an attack on British banks, they're regarded as a public problem, so to speak. Uh, so they're looking at it both public and private, um, and they're taking an integrated approach so that um, uh, if, for example, they this unit sees a, a cyber attack on, say, the British banking system. They'll pick up the phone, call the British bank, and say, we see attack on your system, or we see malware being loaded on your, on your network. Uh, and uh, would you like us to do something about it? Do you want to do something about it? Here's a list of five, uh, uh, five uh, outside vendors we've approved who've gone through our training program and know what we're doing. You could hire one of them to help your system. There is a much more cohesive, coherent program approach to it. And I think, I mean, I have a personal view, I think we need to do something like that uh, rather than dealing with this in such a decent way because it took Congress, I don't know, the gestation period, a long time to pass the system, which was the Computer Information Sharing Act in 2015, last year. Um, they later and later introduced a little tiny bill, in my personal opinion, which barely the nature of the threat, because there's such a divergence of opinion and such a uh, level of skepticism on the private sector, they don't want to share information with the government. For probably to understand the reasons, they say, gee, if we share information with the government, how do we know that uh, if we let the government into our computer system that the SEC isn't going to find something and later sue us or the uh, FBI to discover something that we didn't know? So we, we don't want guys in our systems. Okay, I get that, I understand that. But on the other hand, 
if we go out there and see what's going on, then we won't be able to instantly share information about that with someone else. And in the world of cyber, we need to be able to act within seconds, minutes. If someone makes an attack on the chase of that bank, uh, we, we have to go with the kind of society would like to be in a position where we would be able to go to attack and chase the bank, be able to go to the city bank and say, hey, you better close up this hatch, close that port, here's a new vector, and we don't want the New York Stock Exchange to be taken down or, or the Visa card system to be taken down because we were busy filing reports and waiting three days until we could share the information. So the ability to act quickly in a coherent way and share information in real time is, is what's needed. We know what's needed, but getting there is a real problem. So for advanced words, it's definitely something that's going to sort out over the next few years, but that's what our projects you talked a little bit about the transition from private to public uh, practice. I'm curious about you know, what you see to be a little bit more about the benefits and costs of having developed a full career in private practice before transitioning into such a, a highly technical and highly scrutinized agency. Uh, I imagine it's a trade-off. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the trade-off was that for the first year, I was utterly foolish. Uh, I, I didn't have the slightest idea what I was doing. Uh, and it took me a year to, and even now, I'm still very complicated for, for many years to far superior knowledge. So um, the, the advantage of working in the private sector for a number of years and then going to the public sector uh, is that you bring a fresh perspective, a, a, uh, uh, a sort of an outsider's sense of, well, I was referring earlier to a number of redundancies that I see in the area. So if you're in government, you just normally think, well, we always file these 27 reports, that's just Someone coming from outside will say, wait a minute, why are you filing 27 reports? You should only be filing free. And so having an outsider come in just bring a sense of fresh perspective, a very helpful a sense of efficiency, management, experience, etc. So there's no doubt in my mind that I'm not the person, but people in my position are able to come from the outside and bring value to the, into the public sector. Um, having said that, uh, you know, was it smart of me to spend almost 40 years before joining the private sector, before leaving the private sector, joining the public sector? I don't know, probably more fun and more useful to do it earlier in my career. On the other hand, um, you know, financially I did okay for a long period of time, and I was able to afford, so to speak, to go into um, uh, government service and, and not, not feel concerned about it. And, I really think it depends on who I have some friends who said, gee, should I go into uh, government first and then go into the private sector? And I think that's a perfectly terrific path. You can develop expertise in the public sector. You can get experience and benefits that you can't get uh, um, in private industry. And it makes you incredibly valuable as lawyers to uh, leave uh, government service and join a corporation, uh, knowing what you learn in, in, in public service. So I think it goes both ways. I don't think there's any one right path. Um, so it depends upon what your career goals are. Like everything else, in life there's trade-offs. So you'll be like on the point. So good things about it, bad things. It's hard to say. Like, it's hard to generalize and say one thing is better um, than the other. Lynn, uh, for those students that might be interested in joining yeah. uh, NSA, could you give a couple of words as to how the process works and what they might do. Sure. Uh, and and uh, I, I would love to have 
turned out to be the case uh, that people came uh, from UVA. So um, we have an audit, what we call an audit program, which is a, a program where uh, we take in really super students from the top law schools in the country uh, who join us for a three-year commitment. We, we give them a sort of a three-year contract, so to speak. Um, and uh, we have these attorneys join us directly out of law school. They spent 18 months in one of our practice groups, which could be in intellectual, in, in, in intelligence law, in litigation, administration operation where we spent 18 months in one section and then eight, another 18 months uh, in another um, and then at the end of that period uh, they either decided they'd like to stay with NSA 99% of the time we can accommodate them and, and they can spend as much time as they want thereafter or they can go into the private sector or another government agency and we're just now completing our third year of that program so we're just now reaching our first classes it's graduating, so to speak. It's been incredibly successful. We're expanding it uh, uh, because we're able to get really terrific people to join us. Um, the kind of person we're looking for is someone who has terrific interpersonal skills and judgment and wisdom, the ability to function on their own because uh, we're a small office, about 100 and something larger, and again, a little bit bigger over the next few years. Um, but our lawyers are right at the cutting edge. It's not a system like my old law firm where there was a sort of junior associate, a mid-level associate, a senior associate, a partner, and then a senior partner, and they work on a big matter together. And if you were the junior associate, what you were doing was like reading depositions. It was good training, but you weren't actually on the front lines. Not the system at NSA. At NSA, we're taking people in who are fabulous individuals, we hope, and we're at the appropriate training measure, but we're putting them right on the front lines. So I've got people who've been uh, in our honors program, we're in their, um, you know, in, in their eight, first 18 month rotation, and they are directly advising on surveillance questions of what can we do about this terrorist? Uh, do we need to notify this company about this uh, uh, cybersecurity breach? Um, they're, they're on the front lines. They're talking, they're, uh, someone yesterday, one of our persons been with us uh, about five or 10 months, they were literally on the phone with someone um, around the world in about us. So we've got people literally on the front lines. And it, everybody says when they do this, they say they're the most exciting job. And a lot of them tell me, gee, I've got friends at law firms and corporations, and they're all incredibly envious of my position. Not mine, me, I mean, the students uh, say that. And so it's, it's a terrific opportunity. Um, I'm sure there's some negatives to it, like everybody else in life, but, but it is a terrific opportunity. It doesn't pay, pay as well as the private sector, that's for sure. But those of you who are interested, uh, and, and this is replicated elsewhere within the intelligence community, I think CIA has a comparable program. Department of Justice, National Security Division has a, has a somewhat similar program. I can say unequivocally that NSA is the best, but um, uh, you should look at um, other opportunities in this area. Uh, FBI also has a somewhat similar program. And I'm about to try to initiate an ICY honors program where someone can, we don't have to do this in a year or two. Uh, where someone can join this program, maybe send a year at the CIA and then a year at NSA or something like that. So we're working on that too. But if you're interested, uh, I'm going to talk to the place in all this year, but also uh, just stay tuned to the NSA website because we will publish the book that we're uh, looking at it um, probably next August and next September for the next year's conference. We have time for maybe one or two more questions. Yep. 
Yep, sure. Hi. So you were talking earlier about cybersecurity being a major concern. I know a lot of individuals are concerned. Um, so I know a lot of computer security experts have recommendations, such as use VPNs, use cores, all of these other things. There's also been reports of people who download core being on lists for NSA of who's downloaded. And so, and I'm not saying that happens, I'm putting all these things. How does people's individual efforts to use encryption, to use Tor, use VPNs, to be more secure against outside attacks affect their potential privacy rights, especially with trying to balance security and privacy? Yeah, good, good question. I, you know, uh, I, well, I guess if we could say that um, we're only going after bad guys, uh, that our effect really answers your question, but it, but it as I say, has the added advantage of being true. Uh, um, for the for the average American who wants to take all prudent steps to uh, enhance their online privacy, I would say absolutely go do it. I do it myself. I'm you know I'm I'm just as concerned as everybody else. I worry about what's happening in my Gmail account, whatever. And in my case, I've got other people who I know are in my Gmail account that have already seen evidence of some foreign. Uh, we're not certain, so I highly like it. Farmers are trying to tap into mine, um, but um, my my suggestion would be absolutely do every, everything you feel comfortable with. Uh, you know, if you want to use two-factor authentication for your emails, great, do it. If you want to use privacy, do it. Uh, or extra layers of privacy or whatever. I think that's all fine. Uh, from the NSA point of view, um, I don't think we're we're obviously not concerned with uh, uh, Americans um, doing that. Uh, Anyway, so it's not even relevant to us. Uh, from the FBI's point of view, which might be doing criminal investigations, uh, investigating that's an issue for them. But uh, you know, my, my personal suggestion would be for people to use whatever layers of uh, um, privacy and encryption and security devices they feel comfortable with. Uh, I, 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 we're, we're literally focused on a rather finite, specific group of people who are engaged in doing America ill, and I don't think the average citizen needs to worry on that, in my personal view. Good question. Yeah, sir. Yeah. Um, so the NSA was founded in 2002 in the wake of 9-11, and uh, presumably with a mind toward uh, not uh, founded in 2002. No, actually we're celebrating our 60 uh, fourth anniversary, uh, 60, 64 years old uh, yesterday, or today, or tomorrow, something so right here. President Truman signed an uh, executive order um, in 1952, uh, which was secret. The order itself was secret, and the agency itself was secret, and not allowed to even be referred to it in the car signs for many days. So, we're 62, 60, 64 years old. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the, the question I think is still relevant though. Um, so presumably though in the past uh, several years, the agency has had a focus toward non-state actors um, and preventing, preventing their activities. Um, how has the NSA had to pivot toward uh, the challenges presented by state actors, by Russia, China, who uh, just last month, or not last month, in August, uh, launched their uh, quantum communication satellite what, what ways are the NSA addressing these challenges? So, uh, uh, before I got there, in the Cold War era, uh, NSA had a more, 
more clearly defined mission and our sort of scope was more understandable and a little narrower. It was a cold war day. We knew who we knew who the bad actors were, where our adversaries were, which was essentially essentially uh, Russia principally and to maybe to a lesser extent China. Um, and then with the end of the Cold War, uh, we had the rise of say non-state actors of terrorists just generally, so that's Require our aperture of what we look at and focus on to be incredibly wide, really global. We're facing a ubiquitous, persistent threat in terms of terrorists, non-state actors, and terrorists are everywhere. Uh, the nature of the technology has changed so that, again, years ago, we knew what we had to focus on, which was there were only a handful of communication satellites. We knew exactly where they were, we knew where the ground stations were, we knew where, I don't know, whatever, submarine cables, whatever, whatever the technology we were going to target was, and, um, and there's years ago, all phones were controlled by monopolies in each country, and it was just sort of a very narrow, finite area. And now with the advent of technology, uh, there's and soon the internet of things, there's sort of the, what was the Gartner report that just came out a few weeks ago, that there's going to be, in three years, there's going to be 20 billion, 20 billion internet of IoT devices. Uh, so that's a lot to keep track of. Um, uh, so with the, with the nature of technology changing and the political landscape changing, we have to greatly, greatly expand our horizon. And now, uh, with the increased tensions with Russia, uh, cyber security threats from four countries, uh, North Korea, Iran, China, and Russia, had to focus in particular on cyber actors within those countries, some of which are maybe literally state sponsored, some of which may be proxies for the state, and some of which may have no connection to the state, but just be located there. So all of a sudden, the universe of what we're looking at has just exploded, and it is a major challenge. So that's one of the reasons I said the place is so complicated. We just have operations literally around the world, 24 hours a day, uh, and it's not limited to any one technology. But the resources of the United States government are very impressive in this regard. Um, uh, we work very closely with, um, you mentioned satellite, the, the Chinese satellites. We work very closely with um, other elements of the Defense Department and um, the DIA, for example, Defense Intelligence Agency, and the um, National Reconnaissance Office and the engine, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which is the agency that is responsible for satellite imagery, et cetera. So all of that is very closely coordinated. Um, and I'll just close with one sort of little story that I've got So every, um, every Monday and Friday, I go into the office at 8 o'clock, uh, there's a briefing um, for the senior folks in the agency to report on intelligence activities over the past few days. And it's just absolutely fascinating that I go in, and there are a number of screens, sort of a smooth looks like it's designed by a Hollywood set designer. And there are there's information coming from other government agencies that's also synthesized in this one national security operations center at NSA. Uh, and it's just absolutely fascinating to see the resources of the United States government when they're integrated and arrayed uh, in a very powerful way to protect our troops overseas, to prevent a terrorist incident, whatever. Just seeing that in that room is, uh, is just, just pretty amazing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.